Romans chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 in the blue ESV Bibles. You can find that on page 944, Romans 8, 12 through 17. The title of our sermon this morning is Assured by the Spirit, and our key words for our worshipers and training are spirit, sons, and adopted Now, a lot of you know, most of you know, some of you are learning and or will learn very soon that parenting comes with many great joys. There are a lot of difficult things. There are a lot of trying things. There are a lot of annoying things. There are a lot of messy things. But there are a lot of joys. To me, one of the greatest joys is when I see evidence that my children know beyond a doubt that they are loved by me, that they can trust me, and they want to be loved and provided for and protected by me. Sometimes it's as simple as being in a crowded place and them wanting to hold on tightly to my hand and not let go. Other times it's their waking up in the middle of the night after a bad dream and wanting to just be close or getting hurt and saying, I want my daddy or being willing to jump from a high place into my arms, or they're being able to say exactly what's on their mind and tell me exactly how they are feeling when they're scared or what they're thinking about their life and what it might be because they trust me. And while I can tell you without a doubt there are a whole lot of ways that I fail as a parent every single day, it's a big win in my book when my children can be assured that their mother and I love them and we will care for them, we will provide for them in any way that we can to the best of our abilities. And good parents want the very best for their children. And good parents want their children to know that we want what's best for them. Good parents want their children to have assurance and love and trustworthiness and care. Now, all of us know that God is the greatest of all fathers. Now, some of you in here haven't or didn't have or don't have a good father, so thinking of God to be your father can be difficult for some people, but but everything a father should be, God is. And indeed, everything that a father wishes he could be but can't, God is. And so even if you had or have a great father who is godly and is patient and is wise and reasonable and provides you with with exactly what you need and disciplines you with reasoned judgment and, and careful explanation and care and he shepherds your heart well and has loved you unconditionally, even he is not perfect and will tell you how far short he has fallen in so many ways. And he's very keenly aware of those ways. Even the very best father in the world cannot compare to what God is for his children. And because of that, we can know that even more than, the very, than, than what the very best father in the world wants for his children, God wants for his children. He wants his children to know that we can trust him. He wants his children to know that he loves us. He wants his children to know that we can have assurance that we will be with him forever and ever. 
And as we continue this short series looking at the doctrine of Christian assurance, we're going to take a look at another way in which the Lord gives us assurance of our salvation, that we can know that our Father truly loves us and cares for us and will keep us to the very end. As we consider this morning the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian for our assurance. And if you're struggling to know whether or not you are in Christ, if you do not have assurance that you are a Christian, understanding the work of the Holy Spirit gives life and gives hope. Understanding the work of the Holy Spirit gives peace. And and so as we look at Romans 8 together, we're looking at one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. But as we look here the Lord is going to show us the way in which the Holy Spirit ministers to His children in order that we might know that we are truly in Christ. So let's read together, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, as it pertains to what we're focused on today and throughout the series, this passage really hinges on what we see in verse 16. This is the heart of the matter for us. Again, Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But I don't want to just sort of say that vaguely and move away from that and leave us with the big important question. We need to ask questions of the Bible. And the one we need to ask here is, how? How does the Spirit do that? Christians, especially preachers, are very good at at saying things. They sound meaningful. They sound helpful. But they really just aren't because they don't have any meat on the bones. And so we want to try and fill that in this morning. We have to dig a little bit. We have to spend some time in the text and say, Paul, how is this going to be helpful to me? How do I know how the Holy Spirit does this work? And so that's where we're headed. And I hope the Lord will give us more assurance this morning in our standing in Christ. I hope uh, as, as we do this, this presses you on to look at your Bible in this way more and more, that we're always asking questions of the Scripture as we read, and we're asking how God does this. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning and you know that, I will say most of what I have to say this morning is to Christians. I, I'm talking to believers in Jesus Christ, those who have put their faith And trust in the Lord Jesus as the one who lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law of God that we could not fulfill, dying a sinner's death that all of us have deserved, and being raised from the dead to conquer sin and death, to reign and rule from his throne in heaven forever and ever. However, even though my primary aim is Christians, 
It's good that you would hear, that you not tune out and check out, and I hope that you won't, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So I want you to hear God's Word and what He does in the lives of His children so that by that, perhaps God would be pleased to give you a longing. And I pray that God would would give you a longing to know and to trust God, that you would desire Him that you would want to be his child. And if you turn to him by faith in Christ, you can. God, who is the greatest father and cares for and loves and pours into and protects and provides for his children, is a great father. And to any who come to him, he will not cast out. And I want that for all of us. And I pray the Lord will do that this morning. Well, I want us to think about verse 16 and sort of build around that verse and ask that question, how? How does he do this? Again, verse 16, look again. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, good. But how does he do that? How does that work? What, what the Holy Spirit is doing, how does that come to fruition so that we can see and know and have understanding that we are the children of God? Well, the first thing I want us to see this morning is in verses 12 and 13. You can know that you are a child of God when you are not living according to the flesh. Now, think about your own life. When do you struggle most with assurance? Most likely, it is when you are in the midst of sin or you're dealing with the aftermath of sin. Sometimes it may be in the midst of a great trial or some kind of suffering, but more often than not, our lack of assurance is tied to our sin. And so unless you've only been a Christian for like 10 minutes, you know what I'm talking about, right? We've all struggled with that. Those moments where we finally recognize what we have done is sinful, we feel the guilt, we feel the weight of it, we feel, uh, we feel the pain of having pleased ourselves over and above, focusing all of our, all of our attention, all of our hope, all of our desires on, on making much of God and acting in accordance with our knowledge of who God is and what God has done in our lives. All of this, as we focused on our own flesh, as opposed to our obedience to what God desires. We feel the weight of that. And as Christians, furthermore, we know that we're not obligated to sin. We don't have to sin, and yet we do and we will. But it's not because of our inability to stop, but out of an unwillingness to completely die to ourselves, to completely live upon Christ. And so we will respond then. And we continue to to pour it on instead of Sometimes repenting, it becomes a part of our, how we react to others. And so we'll be harsh with our children or our spouse or, or we, we will trade harsh words with others to make ourselves feel superior. We'll, we'll gossip about others to assuage our own guilt in a situation that we can cast a bad light on someone else to make ourselves feel better, get the spotlight off of us. Or we'll try to numb the pain of it all We'll want to fill the void left by our laziness or our attempts to forget the pressures of life by, by abusing the gifts of God and things like drink and food and sex. And we do that through drunkenness and gluttony and, and pornography. It's in, it's in those times 
It's in those times when we come face to face with the reality of what we've done and most often we'll pause and we'll think, am I really a Christian? Am I really in Christ? If I, if I were, would I really have done this? Have you ever been there? Has that ever been the experience of your own life? Now, of course, you know my aim up front is to offer assurance, to remind you that we are in Christ. We are secure in Christ without question, but we cannot forego this important element to our assurance. We have to ask the hard questions. We have to ask ourselves, first and foremost, if we are living according to the flesh. It's, it's possible to be assured, but to be assured of a salvation that doesn't actually exist. That is truly something that we need to be aware of. And so verses 12 and 13 serve as a reminder to us that there is a kind of living which makes very clear to us that we may not be children of God. If you live according to the flesh, Paul writes, you will die. We have to take this seriously to determine whether or not we truly are in the faith. But we have to pay attention to how Paul writes this. Notice he doesn't say, if you commit a sin according to the flesh. He doesn't write, whenever you act out of the flesh, you should question your salvation. No, notice how he writes it. This is helpful. If you live according to the flesh, and he writes that in a present tense. It's like saying, if this is ongoing in your life, if this is what you are continually doing, if this is the pattern of who you are, if the decisions you make and the ways you interact with others, if the things you find greatest enjoyment in, if the, the constant drumbeat of your life every day is in accordance with the flesh, then there's a problem, and you might not be a Christian. But listen, as you live life on this earth, the flesh is going to rise up. And you're going to do things selfishly. You're going to do things in a worldly way. Look, we came into this life as a Christian, broken and needy, as people who needed help, who needed a righteousness outside of our own, and we couldn't clean ourselves up. And guess what? You are still broken, you are still needy, and you still need a righteousness not your own, and you still need to be cleaned up by Christ, and you will not arrive until you get beyond the grave. And so if you get really honest with yourself right now, and all you can see is that your pattern of life is to live according to the flesh. I, I'm not just talking about being moral here, these external things, but I'm talking about how you think, how you reason, how you make decisions, what excites you, what gets you out of bed in the morning, what gets you going day by day. If every single bit of that is according to the flesh, and all of this that I'm saying is sort of landing on you as this massive weight and you are a place in your life where you need to stop and determine whether or not the Spirit of God is working in you, I pray that you will. But, but just as much as I deal with Christians not being assured of their salvation, I deal with people who are certain that they are Christians while the pattern of their lives reveal that they probably really aren't. And so it is a real part of all of this. We do not want a false assurance that is a real thing. And having false assurance is far more deadly than being a Christian and not having assurance even though you're in Christ. 
So if you're hearing what I'm saying and your response to all of this is, yes, that's me, but I know I'm not going to do anything about it, and you're sort of apathetic about the whole thing, friend, beware. Beware. What does Paul remind us? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's not saying you're going to do something stupid and die because of that. He's not, he's not just reminding us that at the end of our lives we all die. No, Paul is referring to an eternal, everlasting death. He's referring to judgment and hell that are the just penalty for our sin for all who do not trust in Christ. And so this is when all of you say, thank you so much, Pastor, for this great sermon on assurance because now I'm questioning my salvation more than I ever did before. Thanks, Barnabas. <laughs> Hold on with me. It's only my first point. But it's an important point. We can't just gloss over that reality. Here's where I think most of you probably are, though. Yes, I sin. Yes, I have some terrible things that have gone into my life as a Christian, and I wish they weren't on record. Yes, I am very much tempted toward making some very bad decisions and doing things in some terrible ways. But is that the trajectory of the entirety of your life? Am I living according to the flesh, or do I have instances where I act or walk in the flesh, but... In my guilt, I am brought to a place of regret that leads to repentance. There's a huge difference. I hope you see the difference. It's really marked by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One of the ways verse 16 happens in our lives is we have conviction in our hearts when we sin. If the Holy Spirit is working in your life, when you act out in a sinful way, it's the Holy Spirit as you're moving into that, who's saying, don't do that. Don't go that way. Why are you doing this? And then it's the Holy Spirit working in you afterwards when you're broken and feeling defiled and, and sort of wrecked afterwards, saying, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I, I need to be reconciled. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to repent. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And if you can look at your life and see that there is a lot going on in accordance with the flesh, but there is a desire to be right with God and to repent of your sin and to be reconciled to those that you hurt, to be reconciled and made right with those that you have sinned against, there's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And you can be thankful for that. And there's brokenness and repentance when you sin. And the trajectory of your life is not unrepentance. We can be thankful that the Lord is working in us that we not be living by the flesh every single day. So that's one way we can know that we are a child of God by the work of the Holy Spirit, that we're not living according to the flesh. Secondly, verses 13 and 14, you can know you are a child of God because you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And so Paul sort of takes another step with this same idea. You're not living according to the flesh, but in fact you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So you're, contrary to putting them on, you're, you're taking them off. You're identifying what those things are in your life, and you are seeking to eliminate them from your life by the power of God. This is a connection between verses 13 and 14. Remember again, verse 16 the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. How does he do that? The second assurance he gives us that we ask is, am I, as I'm asking, am I being led by the Spirit of God? That's the question that comes out of verse 14. Is that happening? If I'm being led by the Spirit, I can know that I am saved because I, that assures me that I'm a son of God. So what's the connection? It's the first word in verse 14, that word for. Look again at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So in other words, Paul is saying, if you put to death the deeds of the body, if you do not live according to the flesh, by the Spirit you will not die, but you will live. And the reason you will live is because you are being led by the Spirit and the children of God do not die. You see that? You see what he's saying here? So, so how do I know whether or not I'm being led by the Spirit? That's a huge important question for us to answer. And we see that right out of verse 14. I want to know that I am a son of God. I want to know that he is my father and that I am his son. How do I know that? If I'm being led by the Spirit, what does that mean? It means I'm taking aim at and destroying sin in my life that comes about when I'm living according to the flesh. So if I'm a child of God... I will destroy, I will put to death, I will do battle with the deeds of the flesh, and I will know that I'm a child of God when that's happening because only a child of God puts to death the deeds of the flesh. And I know I'm a child of God when that's happening because of the work of the Holy Spirit, but because, because without the work of the Holy Spirit, I have no desire to kill the deeds of the flesh. I hope that makes sense. That leading of the Holy Spirit is him leading me to do verse 13, namely to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I want to point out once again, verse 13 is written in the present tense. It's not, it's not something that has happened. It's this ongoing reality. It's something that is happening with regularity. As I look at my life, as I see the things that keep me from having sweeter, fuller, more fulfilling, more rewarding communion with God, am I turning to God and saying, Lord, get rid of it. Get this out of my life. Get this out of me. I don't want this anymore. Do what needs to be done to get this out of my life. I'd rather go to heaven with one less eye and one less hand than to be cast into hell forever. Do whatever it takes to get this out of me. And then following the leading of the Spirit, taking all of the necessary steps to get rid of the deeds of the flesh in your life. Look, that doesn't mean that we say, you know, I just really have this problem with lying all the time and I hate lying. I hate that I'm a liar and I wish God would get rid of it, so I'm going I'm to hope that God gets rid of it. And then we just go on lying because God hasn't gotten rid of it yet. No, that's not killing the deeds of the flesh. It would look like going, going to those places in God's Word and using God's Word to convict us of the sin that lies within and then going back and making right the things that are wrong because I have lied. 
going to those that I've hurt because I have lied and seeking to be reconciled and making things right with the truth. No longer walking in it means that I'm making things right that have been made wrong because of my sin, all by the power of God from a conviction that comes from his word. It's saying I know the consequences of being honest now that I've lied might be very significant, but I am living under a weight of guilt of my sin, and I need to be clean, and I need to destroy it. So you swallow hard, and you trust God, and you follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, and you do the right thing because it glorifies God. And you have greater peace. And you can look easier at yourself in the, morning, in the mirror in the morning. Look, praise God. Praise God if you look at yourself in the mirror and you see the sin in your life and you just don't want to look anymore. That is a grace of God that leads to repentance. If you aren't taking that as a gift from God to drive you to reconciliation and repentance, then, then you're not doing anything to kill the deeds of the flesh. If we're comfortable in our sins, there's a problem. If you're not taking steps to kill your sin before it kills you, you're not going to have assurance. And God has designed it so that you won't have assurance, so that you will be brought to repentance. But listen, the deeds of the flesh, the sins that you have to deal with, we're not talking about all of the sin of the world. We're talking about your sin, not somebody else's, not the big sins of society, not the sins of the nation, but yours. Do you hate your sin more than you hate other people's sin? There's this really interesting pattern. It's sad that you see sometimes in people's lives when they are the loudest and most vocal opponents of certain things and other people's sins, what's often the case is that they're the very ones who are guilty of those and yet trying to cover those up by pointing out everyone else who's doing the very same thing that they are doing. It's like saying, am I bad? Yeah, I'm, I do some bad things here and there. But look at that guy. Look at him. Look what he's doing. That's not doing battle with the flesh. It's doing battle with your neighbor. It's doing battle with someone else who, who may be doing battle with their own flesh. But the call to all of us is that we make our own sin the target on which we go to fight that we might put to death the deeds of the flesh. And we can be assured, we can have assurance of our salvation if we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, if we're locked in this constant daily battle to come to the end of ourselves, to live upon Christ, that he may be glorified in us and that we might find our peace and our hope in him alone. Are you living your life in such a way that could be identified as seeking to destroy the deeds of of your flesh. Thirdly, verse 15, you can know you're a child of God because you cry, Abba, Father. Think again, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How? Verse 15, he leads us to cry out, Abba, Father, because we are not slaves, but we are adopted children of God. If you are in Christ, you and I, we are sons and daughters of God. 
He's removed us from one kingdom of darkness and he has made us members of the family of God and we live in the kingdom of light and our king is not a tyrant. He doesn't make us into slaves under a heavy yoke. He doesn't give us a massive burden that he, carries us, he calls us to carry on our own, but he, he is a king, he is our king who says, don't call me sir, call me father. And Paul's telling us here, if you find yourself regularly calling out, crying out, Abba, Father, you are a child of God. You're a Christian. Now, you know, because you're students of the Bible, this can't possibly mean that we just need to refer to God as Father. And if we do, we're fine. I can train anyone to do that. It's not a big deal. It's not just saying, Father, if that was the case, Paul could have just written, say, Father, and you're fine. If you're a child of God, you call him Abba, Father. He makes that very specific here. Why does that matter? There's a lot of debate about this. I'll tell you that up front. Sam and I struggle with that this week, talking through that. But in some sense, I think what's being communicated here is that this isn't as formal this name, why, is, why does it say Abba? It's not an English word. Why is that being communicated? Because it's not so formal. It's more intimate. It communicates in the name something of love and trust and affection and, and openness. It's like our children having that bad dream at 2 a.m. and coming into our room and shaking us awake. Abba, Abba, I had a bad dream. I'm scared. It's sweet. It's, it's full of a sense that I trust you. I need you. And I... It's not this just a formal father. God gives us that kind of access. God gives us permission to have that kind of relationship with him. So Paul is, is conveying here that a, a child of God has intimacy with God. And when we come to him as his children, we come with love and intimacy and deep affection, knowing that if anything is going to be made right, if we are going to feel safe and cared for, if we are going to have our needs met, and if we're going to walk through the scary times of life, the hard times, the trying times, the suffering and the pain, we need to do it with our Abba holding our hand through all of it. It's me going to him and saying, my father, and not just referring to him as a father. Notice also Paul writes that we cry Abba, Father. We don't just say it, we cry it. There's emotional authenticity. There, there's earnestness here. We have this sincere longing in our hearts. So when we're fearful, when we're in pain, when we're worried, when we're confused, when we're spiritually dry, when we're in sin, when we're guilty, we cry out to God, Abba, I need you. I love you. Help me. It's not flowery speech. It's not reciting the Psalms and all of its poetic greatness. It's not this well-planned out prayer. It's, it's the prodigal coming back to the Father and saying, Abba, I'm sorry. I need you. I want you. Only a Christian can have that kind of experience. Only a Christian will live that kind of life before God. And the longer you know the Lord, the more real this is to you. 
If you've ever known a young person who was adopted, not as a newborn baby, but as they were a bit older, you, you see this in their life. At first, they come into the home. They're not entirely comfortable with everything, right? So they follow all the rules. They're very clean and appropriate. They're a bit timid about things. They'll, they'll ask if they can get a snack from the pantry. They'll take their shoes off at the door. They'll make sure their room is clean and their laundry makes it to the basket. They'll help with the dishes. They don't, they don't sit down until they know everything's taken care of. But in time, once they know that they're safe, once they know they're not going to be tossed out, they get comfortable. And praise God for that. Praise God that their laundry doesn't make it into the basket anymore because they know they are home. Does that mean there won't be a few run-ins and need for discipline? No, of course they will be disciplined. But most importantly, it knows that they're loved and they're cared for and, and that they can be themselves no matter what because they don't have to work for their parents' affection. They don't have to work for their parents' love. They don't have to work for their acceptance. And brothers and sisters, as adopted children of God, we don't need to work for our Father's love and acceptance and assurance. That is the beauty of the gospel of God's pure grace. We don't have to work for God to love us, for God to provide for us. We don't have to prove anything by our works. And even if we try, they're never good enough. They're never good enough. You ever ask your five-year-old to clean the bathroom? It's not good enough. You've got to go back and fix it anyway. So you're not going to prove anything by your works. Oh, we don't need to do that. We have our Abba. We have our father. We have an elder brother who was able to live perfectly on our behalf and die in our place so that we can be adoptable. Not on our own work, not on our own worthiness, but on his work and his worthiness applied to us. God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And by that work... And by that death of your Savior, you are given the right to call him Abba, Father, my Father. Well, all of this comes with this marvelous promise in the end. And it's not only that we can now have assurance, but that it's tied to the tremendous promise that because we are adopted children of God, and because we are able, made able, to walk by the Spirit instead of the flesh, that we as children of God are fellow heirs with Christ. We see that in verse 17. Now, I've never seen anyone turn away an inheritance. But in this case, what will we inherit? There's three things I want to point out in terms of our inheritance as we look at this promise here because it's tied to our assurance in such a way that our inheritance can serve to entice us out of our sin and out of our indifference to God's fatherhood. They're motivators for us to keep striving on for the kingdom of God. So here they are. First, we inherit the world. Small promise, I know, but we inherit the world. Romans 4, 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that we would be heir of the world 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We, if we are true believers in Christ, are the offspring of Abraham. And we, if we are true believers in Christ, because we are his offspring, will inherit the world. It's ordinary people, and I assure you, you're all very ordinary people, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, becoming heirs of the world. You want Georgia? It's yours. One day, it's all yours. So what do I, what do I mean? That knowing this helps us strive all the more faithfully, not feeding the flesh. When I know that one day, I with Christ, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, will inherit the world, I don't have to crave to have and to have and to have more and more and more here and now. It's all yours in just a little while. So it's really, you see, it's really, really, really not your best life now. Your best life is later if you're a child of God. This is the worst life you have to live right here and right now. And yet, still, you can do so with God, with joy. If you're a child of God, that should motivate you to keep striving for the kingdom, for that inheritance of what's yours and not after the things of this world. Now you suffer. Later you inherit the earth. Secondly, we inherit God. Romans 5, 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What do you get when you get to heaven? We think a lot about the gifts of God. We think a lot about our friends and family who have died. But what do you get when you get to heaven? You get God. Everlasting, never-ending, unhindered, perfect communion with God, with your creator, with your sustainer. So even though the flesh is telling you to find pleasure in your stuff, when the Spirit is working in you, when your eyes are set on life beyond the grave, you don't find your hope in stuff. You don't even find your hope in your friends or your relationships. You, you might think those things will fulfill you, You might think those things will fill your longing, but you know in your heart that they won't because you've tried it. God is the one we were meant to enjoy, and if we are children of God, we will inherit the privilege of enjoying Him forever without any hindrances whatsoever. We inherit the world. We inherit God. Thirdly, we inherit glorified bodies. Romans 8, 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I don't know about you, but this gets me very excited. Not because I can just eat whatever I want, Physically, it's not going to bother me. It's not about not getting fat or eating all of the best foods or being able to slam dunk a basketball. Look, beyond that is what we're getting at. Beyond that reality of what goes on in our flesh every single day. In your new glorified body, everything here that is threatening to become an idol won't be threatening to become an idol anymore. 
It will no longer be true that your food or your drink or your sex or your relationships or your exercise or your looking and feeling a certain way will become an idol to you. You won't even have the slightest temptation toward that. Every single bite of bacon you put in your mouth will be worship. It's nearly worship now, I assure you. But that is the glory of being with God, that nothing is veiling him. Nothing is standing between us and him in this, like is in this world that keeps us from knowing and enjoying and worshiping him for all that he is and giving him all that is his due because he's worthy, because he is holy, 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 and he has given us far more than we could ever repay in all eternity. The last thing here, and it's important, all of this comes how? How does Paul say this all comes? Look at verse 17 again. Really important. He says, provided we suffer with him. So is Paul saying that in order for me to know that I'm a child of God, that I need to go out and find some persecution in my life? I need to make sure I'm being persecuted and suffering in the faith in order to get heaven. Is that what Paul is saying? Is seeking persecution a strategy for assurance? No, that's not what Paul means. The emphasis here is when Paul writes, provided we suffer with him. It's in those words, with him. Here's the reality. We live in a fallen, broken world, and so everyone without exception, in some way, everyone will suffer. So Paul emphasizes that we're not just suffering, but we're suffering with him or in him. In other words, are you willing to stick with him as you suffer? When it's at its worst, when things are really bad, when everything is horrible, are you willing in your suffering to be sanctified by your conscious confidence in God by saying, this for me right now, this is from my father, from my Abba father, to knock out the props of self-reliance that I'm leaning on under my life so instead I can lean on him. Do you have that confidence? It happens only through suffering because as, as fallen people, as we face trial after trial after trial, we would continue, if that didn't happen, we would continue to fall in love with all of the comforts of this life and forget God completely. But God knows you. He knows what you're made of. He made you. He's our Father, and He knows that in order for us to get our inheritance, sometimes we need to suffer. Not so that we hurt and question Him, but it's not that He's just our Father. He's also a really great surgeon. And sometimes a good surgeon needs to break our leg to make things better or cut it off to save the rest of the body. And so suffering with Christ is not shaking our fist at God when suffering comes and walking away, but instead confidently and joyfully saying in the midst of it all, Abba, Father, I hate my sin more than I hate losing these pleasures in my life, so have your way with me. You're my loving Father. You're my wise and faithful surgeon. Do what you must do to keep me leaning on you. Then, brothers and sisters, then you can know for sure, and God wants that for us. He wants you to know for sure 
that he is your faithful, loving Father that provides all that you need, even sometimes the very suffering that he has ordained that you might be broken of yourself to live more fully and completely upon him.